Amen. Well, tonight we're going to spend our time in Psalm 145. And I want to begin our evening just reading through the psalm. So if you would, turn with me there. That's Psalm 145. Psalm 145, we'll begin in verse 1. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and they shall sing aloud for your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All of your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all of your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of His ways and kind in all of His works. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him, he also hears the cry, their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Well here, right out of the gates, David is in a state of worship. He's in awe, and his awe is captured by God himself. Notice the very first statement that appears here in this passage. I will extol my God. Right? This statement sets the mood for the remainder of the psalm. This is a psalm of praise. David has set his mind on God, and he has decided to offer his worship to God in a song. It's a song that David wrote for the people of Israel, and it's meant to be sung in the congregation. And as this psalm begins, we see David is making a declaration that he will live all of his days worshiping God for who he is. Every day, he will subscribe to God the glory that God deserves. Look at verses 1 and 2. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. 
Notice, David claims here that praising God is actually a lifestyle. It does not happen in a specific or a limited moment. It does not happen in a specific or limited room, nor does it happen in a specific or limited form. We do not limit our worship to a Sunday morning or to a Tuesday night. We do not limit our worship to what happens inside of a church building. We do not even limit our worship to singing. Throughout all of our days, with all of our words, no matter what context or what what environment we may find ourselves, we are called to praise God. Here's the truth. People, by their very nature, are programmed to worship. God has formed and fashioned us to offer praise. God has made us for worship. And the question that we have to ask ourselves then is who is it that we worship? Who or what are we offering our praise to? So trust me, you are offering praise. You are offering worship throughout the course of your day. You are worshiping within your daily conversations. You are offering praises in your mind. You're offering praises in your heart and in your affections. But the question is, to whom are you offering your praises? You see, your heart, my heart, they form and fashion its own objects to worship all the time. Maybe it's the grade that you're hoping for in your class that you cannot stop thinking about. Maybe it's the salary that you are continuously and constantly striving towards, no matter what roadblock may stand in your way. Maybe it's the hobby that you enjoy so much and cannot get your mind off of. Maybe it's the friendship that you have. Maybe it's the relationship that you have. What is it that is consuming your thoughts? If you were to boil it down, what is it that you live for? I'd encourage you to spend some time thinking about this because whatever you are living for, whatever it is that you find yourself consumed with, that is what you are praising and that is actually your God. And David realizes this. We offer praise every single day. And so, the Word of God here is calling us to evaluate whether or not God is the one who is receiving our worship. You need to evaluate whether or not God is the one ruling and reigning in your heart. Now, let me point out that God is far more worthy of your praises than your idols are. He deserves our songs and our attention. He deserves our love and our awe because He is worthy of such. He can actually take our awe, we can place our awe in Him and be fully satisfied. He's worthy of our affection. He is worthy of our praises. And I want to point out here that as we continue to read this psalm, here's what David does. He begins to provide reason after reason as to why we should worship God. Why we should worship the Lord alone. This is not a psalm meant to stop 
with a declaration that we will praise God in every season of our life. That's not the whole of the psalm. No, this is a declaration about why we should praise God. That's what this psalm is meant to depict. Here is why we offer God our praises. This is a song meant to cause you to wonder at our God. This is a song intended to make you stop and evaluate who God is. And as a result, praise God all the more. This is exactly why David goes on to give reason after reason why we ought to praise God. You know, songs are actually meant to teach This is how the entire book of Psalms works. The different songs that we read about here in the book of Psalms and and throughout the Bible, they all function as avenues for teaching. God has intended for us to partner truth with melody. God wants us to put our doctrine into the form of lyric and into the form of song. He wants us to put the stories of Scripture into a melodic form so that we might sing the truths and the stories of the Bible. You know, songs have the ability to stir the emotion. Songs have the ability to stir our affections. They cause us to to connect with deeper truths on a deeper level. Right? Music converts what the mind and the intellect merely ponder into something that our heart can cherish. That's the power of music. That's the power of melody. That's the power that that music brings to the table. In addition to that, songs help us to remember truth. This is why we put the truths of Scripture. This is why we put the words of Scripture to melodies, because melodies are memorable. And so we utilize the songs in order to teach words, uh, teach the words and the doctrines of Scripture. This psalm is not merely a call to praise God. This is a psalm with reason after reason as to why we should praise God. You see, our worship is not meant to be ambiguous. It's not meant to be vague. There should actually be specific reasons listed for why we are praising God. And yet, let me just point out, before we get into all the details of Psalm 145 that this is in direct contrast with much of the music that we hear in our church or that we hear on the radio. So often that the music that we hear, called Christian music, it fails to offer substance. We hear songs that call us to praise God without offering any real reason to do so in the first place. We hear songs that sound beautiful, but they fail to offer beautiful lyrics, right? These are artists settling for lyrics that are remarkably vague and remarkably ambiguous. Sure, they might rhyme. Sure, they might fit a rhythm or a meter, but they do not offer any specific truths for us to ponder. Instead, they offer truths in scattered and and unhelpful and unorganized ways. But there is a danger to this. Many of these songs that are notably unhelpful in terms of their lyrics have melodies that are remarkably memorable and catchy. You follow that? 
So they lack substance, and yet they are remarkably memorable. The music is artistically impressive, but the content lacks depth and meaning. And we need to be keenly aware of this. We need to be careful with any song that has the ability to stir our emotions without helping us to understand the truths of the gospel. Let me just be blunt. Music that cre- or caters to the emotions without engaging your mind is actually manipulative. They make you feel hyped and passionate about God. But since the song fails to teach any truth, it's simply not helping you. More than that, in times it may even be causing damage. It's manipulating you into thinking that you are passionate about God. But in reality, your heartstrings are merely being played. You're not actually passionate about God. You're just stirred in an emotional sense by a song. We don't want to be duped into thinking that we are in love with Christ simply because we cry every time we hear a certain song played. You want your love for Christ to be driven by truth, not a pretty melody. So let's learn from what we see here in Psalm 145. This is a worship song meant to teach not to offer up pretty melodies without any substance. Here, in verses 4 through 21, we find four different reasons offered up as to why we should praise God. First, verses 4 through 7, we should praise God because He is great and because He is strong. Verse 4, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Here, our focus is placed on both who God is, and what God has accomplished. Each generation is called to declare to the next generation all that God has done. Look at His wonderful and His wondrous deeds. Each generation has the duty to commend God's goodness to the generation to come. You see, as a church comes together to praise God, for what he has done, there is actually an announcement going forth throughout the congregation. Look, see all that God has accomplished. Right? The people of God are called to pass along the message of the gospel, and we do this with our singing. We teach songs that reflect on the truths of all that God has accomplished. Now, I must point out, our songs are are meant to teach. And this song is teaching us that we have a responsibility to pass along the message of the gospel to a coming generation. Right? This is an encouragement for those of you who are serving in children's ministry, those of you who are serving in our church, in our middle school, or our high school ministries. Right? That is a good thing. It's an opportunity for you to pass along the message of the gospel to a coming generation. 
But let me point out, as college students, as young adults who are thinking about relationships and you're thinking about marriages, you need to also be aware of what you're getting yourself into. I don't know if you knew this, but when you get married, it's, it's actually natural that often children come along. And when children come along, you now have a duty. You now have a responsibility to declare to this upcoming generation who God is, what he has done, what he has accomplished. We are to exalt the goodness and the greatness of God in the presence of the youth and in the presence of our children in order to whet their appetites for the glory of God. I don't know if you're a foodie, but if you are a foodie, think about the ways in which you talk about your favorite restaurants. Right? You get excited. Your hope is to make that person's mouth water. You get enthusiastic. Sometimes you even embarrass yourself in the way that you gush over the flavors that come out of these foods. You just get all caught up in the greatness of this restaurant, and you want to tell other people about it. Well, when we are talking to the next generation about who God is and what he has done, we need to speak in the same exact way. We need to pour forth God's praises in the presence of our children. Here's a little rabbit hole warning. This is also the way that we should talk to people when when we're just speaking to non-Christians about the Lord. We need to talk about God in light of what he has done. We need to allow his goodness and his greatness fuel our evangelism. Let's not get caught up in just arguing with people whether or not God exists. Let's get caught up in declaring how good God is. Praise God for what he has done in the presence of a non-Christian in the same way that you would do so in the private of your own home. Okay, back on the trail. We also see here that we need to meditate on the majesty and glory of God. Verse 5. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. Now, maybe you're hearing that and you're not a Christian and you think that is unintelligible. I have no idea what in the world this is supposed to mean. The glorious splendor of your majesty. That's like a different language. Right? If you're here and you aren't familiar with the Bible, you're thinking, what in the world? But this is not just random language that the psalmist, that David's just conjuring up that has no meaning. In fact, this is profoundly meaningful. He's saying here that if we are going to get excited about God, and sing His praises to a coming generation, we need to contemplate and think about who God actually is. We need to think about His glory and His majesty, which leads us to ask the question, what in the world is the glory and majesty of God? Okay, very proper definition of the glory of God, just really quick. It's a visible an experiential portrait or manifestation, if you like words that are odd, <laughs> of all of God's attributes. It's, it's a portrait of everything God is in a visible representation. 
right? To see God's glory is to see a combination, a, 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 a gathering of all of God's divine, perfect attributes. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is all-present. He is perfect. He is a just judgment giver. In all of his ways, he is absolutely perfect. God's glory is the summation of all of God's perfect and immense attributes. And David is saying here in verse 5 that he is to meditate on God's glory and on his majesty with the purpose, get this, with the purpose of increasing his ability to praise God. Right? That's what this word meditate here means. It can either be to, to think about or to praise. It's an odd word that, that kind of has two meanings. And the best way for us to understand what he's getting at is he's saying, I will meditate on the truths of God. And the longer I do this, it's going to stir my affections up to praise God for who he is. The more you know, the more you come to know who God is, the better you will be able to then worship him. The more you know about God, the more appropriate your worship will then be. The more you understand who God is, the more your heart will be enthralled with him. The more you fathom about God, and the more your mind uh, understands about who God is, the more you will be captivated by his beauty. This is why Paul, in Romans 11 and 12, does what he does. The first 11 chapters explaining, uh, or the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans explain who God is and everything that God has accomplished through the person of Jesus. And then in chapter 11, Paul, Paul switches a, a, or flips a switch into a state of worship and he goes on to say this in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then without skipping a beat, in chapter 12, verse verse 1, he begins the chapter this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So after explaining doctrine, after explaining theology, after explaining who God is, Paul then switches into an attitude of praise and he calls the church in Rome to do the same. In light of who God is, let us then worship. In light of what God has accomplished in the person of Jesus, let us then pour forth the praises of our God that he is worthy of. You see, in response to theology, we ought to look to God with an attitude of worship. The more we know about the glory of God, the more we should be moved to worship. We should praise God for who he is, and we should praise God for what he has done. Next, in our passage, in verses 8 and 9, we find further reason to praise God. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. The next reason that we are to praise our God is that He is gracious and He is merciful. So what is God's grace and what is God's mercy? First, we are a people who deserve judgment. And yet God does not show us the judgment that we deserve. That is God's mercy. Next, Instead of offering us judgment, God gives to us freely His goodness and His kindness. That is God's grace. God gives us the treasure of eternity spent in His presence, though we deserved to be cast out of His presence. That is the grace of God. And think about this in, in light of what we have just seen. Think about the grace and the mercy of God in light of what we just read about. David just went on to expound about the majesty and the glory of God. He went on to emphasize the size and scope and righteousness of our Lord. And the very next thing he does is he focuses on the grace and mercy of God. Right? This is what we should call uh, a beautiful juxtaposition. He puts two seemingly infathomable truths right next to each other. God is mighty. He is all-knowing. He is glorious. And yet he is gracious and merciful. How can those two truths coexist? Mercy and grace are all the more profound the more we come to recognize the greatness of the one who is giving it. Think about this for a moment. The more important someone is, the more awe-inspiring it is to recognize that's the person pouring forth grace and mercy. Because God is mighty, because he is powerful, the punishment we deserve for our disobedience is all the greater. And yet, God forgoes showing us this punishment. Because God is righteous, the consequences for breaking His law are all the greater. And yet, He pours His grace out on us free of charge. You see, let me point out that that we have even greater proof of God's grace and mercy than David did when he wrote this psalm. We have greater understanding of God's grace and mercy through the person of Christ than David ever had. So here we are in a place where we can appreciate David's words even more than David himself. Right? That is a wonderful thing to think about. God has shown us the extent of his grace and mercy by sending his son to redeem a people who do not deserve anything close to redemption. Simply put, people do not deserve God's mercy, and yet he shows it. Just last week, a report came out about an American missionary named John Chow who was martyred while attempting to minister to a hostile tribe located on an island in India. So he tried to contact this tribe multiple times from a distance, 
And eventually, he decided that he was going to approach this island on a boat. And as soon as he stepped on shore, arrows began to fly. And before he could have a single conversation with these individuals, he was dead, lying on a beach. Do you think that the members of this tribe deserve the grace and mercy of God? Do you think that they are worthy of God's kindness? No. You better believe they are not worthy of God's kindness. Killing an innocent visitor who was seeking your good does not merit God's kindness. Such an action deserves judgment. And yet, for people such as this, God has sent his son. And in the same way that this tribe killed a man seeking to bring them good news, so too Christ was killed by the tribe to whom he came. Christ died to redeem members of the very tribe who sought his harm and sought his death. And in the same way, he died to redeem members of this tribe who was responsible for the death of John Chow. People are not worthy of God's mercy. People are not worthy of God's kindness, and yet he freely lavishes lavishes it on us. Our God is abundantly merciful to those who do not receive, deserve to receive his mercy. God grants grace to those who demonstrate not their willingness to receive his mercy, but in fact, the opposite, their hostility. If you are a Christian tonight, you're proof of that. You know, we here, we are not much different than this tribe who killed the missionary. We are not much different than the tribe that decided to kill Christ. And yet God has shown his profound grace on each and every one of us who call on the name of Jesus. We are to praise God for his abundant mercy and grace. Third reason we are called to praise God is found in verses 10 through 13. Here we see that we are to praise God because he rules and reigns over his eternal kingdom. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. And all your saints shall bless you. Verse 11. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. We are to praise God because he rules and reigns over an eternal kingdom. In verse 10, we see that all the world is praising God for his dominion. Every subject of God's kingdom is calling out to him in praise. In verse 11, they praise him because his kingdom is glorious and because God is a God of strength. This God rules over an eternal kingdom that will not fail. Because of his strength, because of his power, because of his might. Verse 13, we find that God's kingdom is eternal and that it has no end. You see, unlike the kingdoms of this world, God's kingdom will extend throughout eternity. 
His kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. His rule is not like the rule of those who reign here now. You see, America is a unique experience, but it's still an experiment. It's a young nation. And it's easy to think this thing has been going on for a very long time, and it's just going to continue on into eternity. A few hundred years ago, this was not a nation with a constitution, and a few hundred years from now, who knows what will happen. God's kingdom, however, is eternal. God is not like the rulers of this world, right? They cannot provide oversight to their kingdom, but for maybe a handful of years, right? If you're a president in the United States, you get to serve in that position for a maximum of eight years. Then it's on to the next guy. If you are a dictator, maybe you can extend your rule and reign to 50 years. God's rule has no beginning and no end, There was never a time when God was not. His rule, his reign over his subjects, it is timeless. His reign stretches as far back into eternity as is possible and as far forward as is imaginable. His kingdom is eternal. God differs from the rulers of this world, right? They cannot offer lasting peace. They cannot offer any sort of control for their subjects, Their adversaries are far too many. Their threats are too abundant. There are too many uncertainties. There are too many people in this world seeking to bring a destruction to peace. No human ruler is actually capable of offering lasting peace, lasting security. Even the most powerful nation in the history of civilization, we live there. And even here, we do not have true rest. We do not have true peace now. We still face threats from within and from without. And these threats present themselves literally on a daily basis. So whether it's political infighting or whether it's foreign terrorists coming into our, our nation to wreak havoc, we do not have a sense of true security even here. Not in an absolute sense. And yet, we serve a God who rules and reigns over a kingdom that will never end. It will never perish. There is lasting security here. There is lasting peace and rest. Though the kingdoms of this world may rage, though they may totter, we serve a God who is eternal and and will rule and reign over his kingdom forever. You see, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you have entrance and access into this eternal kingdom. And for that, we can praise our God. Now, The final reason that we see here for why it is that we should offer God praise is found in verses 14 to 19. Here we see that we are to offer God praise because of his kindness and because of his eminence. Beginning in the second half of verse 13. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling 
and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways, and kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cries and saves them. Notice how David, yet again, is juxtaposing these two amazing truths. God rules and reigns over the entire universe. And yet at the very same time, he is on the side of the lowly and the oppressed. Our God does not look on his subjects as though they are poor peasants. Though he is far beyond us and far greater than we are, he draws near. Though his kingdom is without end, he enters into the lives of his people and shows them kindness. This is what theologians call the eminence and transcendence of God. God is transcendent. He is far beyond us. He is unimaginable because he is so immense. He is far from explainable because he is so profound. He rules over galaxies. He rules over gravity. He, He rules and dictates what takes place within solar systems. He rules and reigns over history. Our God is completely transcendent. He is unfathomable. He is distant. He is far. He is beyond us in every way, shape, or form you could ever imagine. And then more. And yet... Our God is imminent. He is near. How can these two truths be juxtaposed? He doesn't remain distant, ruling over his kingdom in some far off galaxy, in some far off distant uh, element of the, of the multiverse or something like that, right? God is, is here, He's in our midst. He approaches us in his magnitude. He approaches us as a transcendent being. Even though he is so great, he stoops down to our level. Even though he is far beyond us, he draws near to us. Though he stands outside of time, he enters right into it and comes alongside of us in the details of our lives. From the day-to-day experience, how do these true Realities stand next to each other. We have a God who is busy taking care of the entire created universe and yet gives his people what they need. Verse 15. We receive our food and our sustenance from our God. The God ruling over galaxies makes sure that his people have the food they need. This is what Jesus had in mind in Matthew 6. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. Do not be anxious. Our God cares for us. And because he is sovereign over history, because he is able to control the galaxies and gravity, he is able to take care of us. He is able to put clothing on our back. And food on the table. 
notice, God does not only oversee our physical well-being, he even satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts. He satisfies our affections. Verses 16 and 19. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. And He hears their cry and He saves them. When God opens His hand, merely opens His hand, your soul finds the sustenance it needs. He does not merely make sure that our physical bodies are taken care of. He makes sure our souls are attended to. Now notice, the psalm keeps going on to show that God cares for His people. Though He is the ruler over eternity, God draws near to those who call on Him. God draws near to those who are in need and are crying out to Him. Verses 18 and 19. The Lord is near to all who call on Him. To all who call on Him in truth. Though God reigns over history He comes near to His people. And our God has shown us His remarkable eminence in no better way than in the person of Christ. In Jesus, God came to dwell in our midst. In Christ, He is able, God is able to understand and empathize and and sympathize with our sufferings. He has come. He He has understood and partook of everything we go through. He comes to us, even as we are in our filth, even as we are in our pain or our hurt, even as we are in our rags, He comes to us. And He offers us the healing that we so desperately need. As we know, this does not mean that He will always come and deliver us from our difficult circumstances immediately. God hears our cries. He hears us when we plead with Him from the depths of our struggle. But this is not a promise that He will instantaneously remove us from our struggle the moment we lift our voices to Him. No, in fact, sometimes God leaves us in our difficulties in order to teach us and in order to instruct us. And you can be sure of this. When you call out to Him in faith, even when you find yourself in the middle of tragedy and difficulties, God is there to meet you. And so I would encourage you when, you, when you approach that, when you are on your knees crying out to God, the best thing for you to do in that moment is to press into the sovereign hand of God and find yourself with Him surrounding you. Press in because He is there. Press in because He is on your side. We can praise God because He is imminent, and we can praise God because He is kind. He is with us in all circumstances. Because of that, our God is worthy of our praise. Now, as we come to the very end of our passage, we we see a sobering reminder 
that you are either on the side of this king or you stand against him. We see this in verses 20 and 21. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praises of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So, either you offer him praises or you oppose him. Either you bless his name or you curse it. So let us be a people who call out to him in faith. Let us, let us sing this song of praise, blessing God for all that he has done on our behalf. Let us offer our praises because God is both glorious and gracious. Let us offer our worship because we have a sovereign ruler who is an eminent friend. Let us praise Christ, the glorious ruler over history, who has made his dwelling place in our midst and offer us the grace that we desperately need. So with that said, let's finish our time tonight with songs and adoration. Let us offer our voices to God as we close our time this evening. God, we do want to...